0: stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I think by now so much has been uh, written about, dramatized about Bletchley Park and the code breakers in World War II who cracked the Nazi code and helped turn the tide of the war. And I mean, it is a remarkable story, obviously. In fact, one of my favorite books, Enigma by... um, Robert Harris, which is a novel but uh, tells the story. And, I mean, it's, it's great fodder for telling a pretty dramatic story. I mean, that stands out as one of the big facets uh, of the overall history of what's known as GCHQ, this British agency, which was formed in the aftermath uh, of World War I, played a huge role in World War II, obviously, and, again, was front and center in the Cold War. So there are many stories to be told about this agency. Uh, and a University of Calgary professor has been given the official task of telling those stories. As GCHQ marks its 100th anniversary next year, Professor John Harris from the University or John Ferris rather from the University of Calgary's Department of History will write the official history of this organization. And the announcement came out uh, just in recent days. So joining us to talk about this responsibility and this job he now has and to talk about some of this fascinating history, very pleased to welcome to the program Professor John Ferris. Professor, welcome to the show and congratulations first of all. Thank you very much. So tell us a bit about how this uh, all came together.
1: Well, GCHQ is having its centenary and has decided that for a lot of reasons, it's a good idea to make its history more generally available. It's trying to be more transparent than it's been before. And so what they've essentially asked me to do is to write a history that takes them up to the end of the Cold War. There are things they're not giving me access to, so there's nothing on the techniques of breaking codes, and there's nothing about diplomatic code-breaking after the end of the Second World War. But other than that, I've got a fairly wide range of access. So will be writing, for example, the side of signals intelligence in the Cold War between NATO and the Warsaw Pact, signals intelligence in the Falkland War, talking about how relations between GCHQ and its American and Canadian counterparts work, all of this sort of thing.
0: So did they approach you, or, or how did that that aspect of it come together?
1: Well, they approached me. Yeah. And what it comes down to is that there are very few people who know the history of code-breaking, and there are very few people who really know the British side of things. As an historian, I've been working, trying to find the material since 1982. And in fact, I've published and written a great deal, found a lot, and learned how to make sense of the material. And the other thing I did that they like is that I tried to answer the so-what question. So the issue is, okay, fine, you've got all this material. You've got this marvelous intelligence. So what? What do you do with it? What can you do with it? And the problem there is, in fact, sometimes you can't do anything with great intelligence. And sometimes you find that a small amount of intelligence helps you a great deal.
0: Now, people may be more familiar, I think, with MI5 or MI6 when it comes to, to the Brits and, and the spy game. GCHQ has uh, been a, a lot more secretive. I, is, it, is it a parallel then to the NSA in the U.S., or what we have in Canada with, with uh, CSE, as it's known?
1: Absolutely. Um, the thing about signals intelligence agencies is that they're far more important means of collecting secret intelligence than any other organization, and that's universally agreed by everybody who's dealt with it they also have been extremely secretive their view especially at the end of the second world war was the more people know about us the more likely it is that people will come up with defenses we can't penetrate so the more quiet we stay the more powerful we can be and there was kind of a strange psychological complex that also became associated with that and they started following secrecy for its own purposes but GCHQ has four times the personnel of uh, MI6, for example, and produces far more intelligence. So
0: 1919, it's the the end, obviously, just after the First World War, when this agency is created. What, what was the, the atmosphere of the time, and what was the, the thinking of the time behind its creation?
1: Well, before 1914, the British have very small signals intelligence agencies. They know it exists, but they don't really realize what you can do with it. The First World War is the birth of signals intelligence because suddenly you can intercept radio traffic, which is very easily done. You can break codes because they're fairly primitive, and then suddenly you discover that you can do things like predict that an enemy fleet is coming out, work out the exact strength of an enemy army on the Western Front, um, break diplomatic codes and manipulate what other governments do. And when the war is over, the British sit back and say, boy, this is really powerful. We can't afford to give it up. And so they gather together large portions of the different signals intelligence agencies that that existed during the First World War and make them into a new one. And it's the most powerful one in the world through most of the interwar years and probably up to the end of the late 1950s. It's really only in the late 1950s that NSA, the American equivalent, becomes more powerful than GCHQ.
0: So that, that period between its its creation, World War II, I'm, I'm curious how much uh, it, it evolved and grew because obviously then it, it became such a crucial part uh, of defeating the Nazis in World War II.
1: Well, in the interwar years, GCHQ's predecessor focuses on diplomatic code books, and it also has linked to military organizations that intercept radio traffic. But nobody on Earth is doing what Bletchley Park does by, say, 1942, which is to have thousands of people who are treating interception and cryptanalysis as an industrial-scale matter, who are using complex machines, the most sophisticated data processing machines ever known, along with sophisticated mathematics, in order to break into high-grade codes. And so, in effect, there's a revolution occurring in British communications intelligence, between 1939 and 1942. And the astounding thing is how well they handle it. They're really dealing with an utter revolution. They make lots and lots of mistakes, but they're the only people who figure out the solution. And it's partly because they have extremely bright people there.
0: Yeah, quite clearly. I mean, obviously, the, the Nazis knew about the potential for code-breaking. They, they seemed to be very cautious uh, when, when it came to, to communicating and changing their codes um, in the belief that, that this was secure. Was it a fact that they underestimated uh, Bletchley Park and, and GCHQ?
1: First of all, the Germans have good codebreakers break, code themselves. They've actually got a good codebreaking organization. But they're separated into lots of different parts. And the mistake they make is to say that because, theoretically, there are so many different ways you can turn any letter, let's say A, into A by going through a process of of encipherment, they assume that nobody can master the problem. Whereas what the British do is essentially say, let's get together three or four really bright people, give them the problem of determining where the weaknesses are in the system, and if they can find the weaknesses, make massive investments, including building machines, in order to attack the systems. So in effect, the British conclude that you can do something and do it, whereas the Germans conclude you can't do something and don't try.
0: Chris, we just had a major motion picture on the story of Alan Turing. Uh, So much has been written uh, about the Enigma Codebreakers and all the drama at Bletchley Park, but are are there still aspects to that story that have not yet been told?
1: Oh, yes, a huge number. In fact, even with the writing on Bletchley, where there's a great deal written, My account is going to be very different than anyone else's, in part because what I do is put it into a broader strategic framework. I say, why are departments, why are Winston Churchill doing what they do? Um, Why is it also that you have these head-on collisions between different very able people in British codebreaking who can't seem to get along until all of a sudden they do? So I'm answering questions that no one else has tried to answer there. And I'm also saying that Alan Turing was a genius, without question, the greatest mind who ever worked in code-breaking. But there was at least one other person at Bletchley, Gordon Welchman, who was as important to the code-breaking issue as Turing was. And Bletchley was filled with extremely intelligent people. You know, it's, you, you probably couldn't find a better university faculty in the world than you would have found people working at Bletchley.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean... It's been a long time since this this first entered the the, the realm of public knowledge, and we feel as though we we know a lot about it now. But when did that knowledge first become available? At what point did the public first start to learn everything that that had been accomplished when it came to to breaking the Nazi codes?
1: There were lots of things that were written incidentally in the 50s and 60s that actually referred to it, that you had to know what you were looking for. It's the very late 60s and early 70s. Poles, and then French people who were involved in the early portion of attacking Enigma started to write memoirs. And at that point, the British concluded, well, we can't keep it secret anymore, and we're not going to stop the next person who wants to write a memoir from doing it. And then when Wing Commander Winderbottom wrote a book called The Ultra Secret, the British released what they call End Product. In other words, the translations of German messages. So from about 1973 people suddenly realized that there'd been this large attack on German traffic. Um, really, about 20 years ago, the British and Americans, between them and the Canadians, put out in the, their archives essentially almost everything they had on the material. But there aren't that many people who work out it, strangely enough. It's, people are intimidated by the complexity of the matter.
0: Yeah. Uh, did the Soviets know about it at the time?
1: Well, the Soviets knew about it because there were two different British traders who were intermittently providing ultra to the Soviets. Um, George W. Marshall, the head of the American Army, also <laughs> gave ultra directly to the Soviets because he wanted to help them win. But the Soviets had a code-breaking organization of their own, which by all standards was good when it came to diplomatic traffic because they stole code books, and crappy when it came to fighting the Germans. After the war was over, the Soviets picked up their socks, and it's generally agreed they were pretty good, although, I have to tell you, we really don't have great detail on it.
0: Because it was, it was quite a pivot, wasn't it, after World War II, that all of a sudden we find ourselves in the Cold War, and we're now attempting to, to listen in on the Soviets, who, who know a lot about how we do that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is that they're good, but we're better, and I think we're better because we have better machines. What the British demonstrated is that if you combine great mathematicians, and the Soviets have them, with great machines, then what you've got is a tool to break codes that's really overwhelming. And the Soviets are just never at the top of the game compared to what the Americans can do. Having said that, though, there's no question that they're reading a lot of material, and we do not have the evidence yet to definitively answer lots of questions.
0: So now, I suppose for you, you're, you're on a deadline of sorts. Uh, where, where are you at in your work, and uh, when do you expect uh, to have it complete?
1: I absolutely have to have it published. It has to be physically out on the 1st of October 2019. So that probably gives me about 10 or 11 months left where I can still change things. I'm in the middle of the Cold War. I can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it will be, all be out in the in the autumn of 2019.
0: Well, very much looking forward to it. Uh, Congratulations again, uh, Professor Ferris, and thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Rob. Take
0: care. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.